when I came in from a walking party and saw the notice board with this note hanging on it saying that they were looking for troops for overseas for Africa, I just run up and gave my name without any consideration what I was going to tell anybody or anything like that. It was something that I had been looking forward to all my life, a childhood ambition to see part of the world and to see how other people lived. I knew it was somewhere in Africa. I knew they had uh, recently uh, uh, been uh, either promised or given independence. I wasn't too sure. And I can remember uh, distinctly on getting back to my own home from Mr. Boland's office, having to uh, pick up uh, an atlas and have a look at uh, the, the Congo and where precisely it was. It is now widely realized that peace depends not only on the actions of the major powers, but to a greater extent than ever before, upon the actions of the moderate, independent countries like ourselves. Mankind has indeed reached the strange, paradoxical situation in which the forces of weaker countries can be more effective than those of the stronger ones in keeping the peace in certain critical areas of tension. In these critical areas, intervention by one of the major powers or its allies would be almost certain to bring about the intervention of its opponents. Wherever conditions of anarchy create a power vacuum, such as has now happened in the Congo, the danger is that if the vacuum is not filled quickly by forces of the United Nations, it will eventually suck in the major powers and their allies. The Minister for External Affairs, Mr Frank Aiken, addressing troops of the 34th Battalion prior to their departure for the Congo in January 1961. They were to replace the men of the 32nd and 33rd Battalions who had served in the Congo from July 1960, in this the first full participation by Irish troops in a UN operation. Dr Conor Cruz O'Brien, who had up until recently been attached to the Department of External Affairs, recalls the situation. When uh, the United Nations uh, force was set up, when the Congo really collapsed in, in, in June 1960, uh, and UN forces were deployed, uh, at first, those forces were not allowed into Katanga, which uh, seceded. Its secession was not internationally recognized. It was, as a matter of fact, it was never even recognized by Belgium. Uh, but the Western uh, European countries, and uh, both Britain and France and Belgium, were very much on a hands-off Katanga line. Uh, so the question was, would UN forces be able to get into Katanga at all? Uh, Hammarskjöld went uh, to Katanga, to Elizabethville, in 10th July 1960, and came to an agreement uh, with uh, Chombe that uh, uh, UN forces would be allowed in. But Chombe stipulated, and Chombe had a lot of clout at that time, or rather Chombe's advisors stipulated, because it was, it was really a, a Belgian-run thing, not run by the Belgian government, but run by local Belgians and Belgian uh, interests. Uh, they said, yes, uh, we, we were prepared to accept United Nations troops, white ones. Uh, that was 
not at the time uh, publicised. It came to light later. So what Hammerschild had to get for Katanga uh, was uh, white neutrals, and there aren't so many. Uh, the uh, Sweden, his own country, was the obvious one and the easiest for him to get. But Ireland was a very good one from that point of view because Ireland was not merely white and uh, non-committed, uh, but had also its anti-colonial past. Uh, so uh, we were, therefore, uh, in Hammerschel's strategy, uh, we had a, a very uh, significant part uh, to play. Uh, and I think it was uh, partly for that reason that uh, General McKeown uh, was uh, selected to uh, head the military effort uh, and uh, that uh, he chose me as his representative uh, in his, uh, on the political level in Katanga itself. I remember being summoned to Mr. Kevin Boland's office. Mr. Kevin Boland was then uh, Minister for Defence on a Sunday morning and uh, being told that a request had uh, come for uh, troops uh, from Mr. Hammershaw, then Secretary-General of the United Nations, for use in the Congo. Um, I was very much taken aback uh, at the nature of the request at the time, not having had any prior indication that we, Ireland, might have, have been earmarked to figure in the formation of a force to be sent to that country. And uh, number two, uh, plans and preparations in the country uh, weren't uh, very far advanced for the sending of such a unit. Uh, we knew very little about the Congo, and our initial uh, attempts were to uh, uh, get information on the climate in which our uh, people would have to uh, work there. Uh, particularly with regard to health matters and to clothing. Uh, it was never envisaged the, that uh, an Irish soldier would have to fire a shot in uh, anger, either in self or in self-defence, uh, even. Uh, this wasn't the, uh, the uh, image as uh, seen by uh, Mr. Hammerschold, and we all went, went along with, with his thinking uh, at that time that the man with the blue helmet uh, had little to do but uh, be present to uh, restore a situation. What kind of a country do you think you're going to? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> You've seen photographs of it. Well, you're looking forward to it anyway, are you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, good enough, so. Oh, it's taking off now. Quite a memorable sight now. It's undercarriages up and it's now facing into the southwest, heading into open and clear sky underneath this heavy cloud that is still over Baldonnel itself. The first Irish troops depart for the Congo. But had the recent past prepared the Irish Army for such a mission? Colonel Richard Bonworth, officer commanding the 33rd Battalion. From 1945 to 1960, our numbers had become so depleted that we hardly had enough to run our barracks. And each barracks takes cooks and waiters and guards and 
patrols and administrators and so on. And some of the battalions had gone down as low as 40 soldiers in the battalion, which normally would have had several hundreds. And consequently, no matter how one tried to organize training, one found it very difficult indeed. And if one got the soldier out to fire his range practices during the year, it would be about as much as one could do. There were no large-scale exercises. There might be small-scale exercises, but no large-scale exercises, because no barrack commander could afford to for 40 or 50 or 100 of his troops to be taken. That's all he had anyway, to be taken out of barracks. How was he going to run the barracks if he didn't have them? So how well-oriented were the Irish troops for their first international mission? I would say that geographically, few of us knew where the Congo was, um, what size it, it, it was, um, what was the politics behind the handing over of independence from the Belgians to the local people. So basically, I think that we were not well oriented politically or geographically on our mission. What equipment we had was not adequate for the task, not completely adequate for the task. But I must say uh, in this relation that uh, the army had gone through a rather difficult period from 1945 when we finished with the emergency, during which we had a highly trained, highly skilled, well-equipped defence forces. By 1960, we had reduced from the best part of 50,000 to about seven or 8,000. Um, a peacetime army gets the amount of money that the various governments of the period will, will provide, and that is always considered inadequate by any group of military officers and I suppose we got as much as the as the as the as the country could afford but that wasn't very uh, that wasn't a great deal and looking back on it now I feel that UN might have been more generous with the provision of aircraft and transportation mm. but maybe they had their their financial problems as well but we never had sufficient aircraft we never had sufficient transportation mm. Once in the Congo, and after some changes in plans, Colonel Bonworth set up headquarters in Albertville on the shores of Lake Tanganyika, with another base in Monono, some 150 miles to the south. There were other smaller areas that we had from time to time to take over as well, as the situation demanded. And these, like Niemba and Bendera and, and, and others... Uh, would have been about the size of Ireland. If you could imagine Dublin being the, the centre of the battalion, uh, we would have, or being the headquarters of the battalion, we would have had an element in Dundalk. We would have had an element at Wexford. We would have had an element at Cork. And... Um, that would be, have been about the area over which we had our troops. 
The feedback of information to headquarters in Dublin began soon after arrival so that future units might be better prepared for their tour of duty in Africa. Well, we, were, we weren't very long in, in Katanga when we began sending back um, recommendations as to how the next unit should be organised and how it should be equipped and what it should bring. And we, we uh, units afterwards were equipped with armoured cars, such as we had at the time, which weren't very good, but they were, they were what we had. And, um, and they brought out, I think, heavier types of machine guns. And, um, and they, they, they knew about the inadequacy of our, of our beds and, and bedding. Uh, they knew about, um, about inadequacies in, in, in rationing, in rations and so on. And where, wherever we could assist in relation to equipment, whether it was vehicles or trucks or armoured cars or weapons or storage, or whatever it was, I think it could be said that it had gone back to army headquarters long before we, um, we, 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 we went back ourselves. We had to send our troops with the uniforms they, they uh, wore in the ordinary way here in Ireland, which were totally unsuitable uh, for uh, the uh, kind of uh, climate in which they had to serve in the Congo. Uh, there was nothing we could have done at that short notice about it in the case of the first two units going to the Congo, but this was rectified in the case of the third one. Colonel Bunworth recalls how he met the manager of a local cotton factory and overcame the problem of the uniforms. We said we would approach this fellow and see could we get uniforms made. So um, we did and we talked to him and he said um, he could supply them. What would we want? So it was very easy to work out what we wanted and that we want slacks and shorts and socks and shirts and neckerchiefs and things like that. So we quickly worked out if we had four pairs of slacks and four pairs of shorts and six pairs of socks and so many shirts and, and so on and so many neckerchiefs that we'd, we'd have our troops adequately um, dressed for the, for the climate. And he says, um, who'll pay? So I said that UN would pay, which they did. Here, here to the UN, they did pay. And, and w without any problems, they, they paid. Because it was a considerable amount of uniform that we had. We had ordered for 700 troops, you know, that would be 2,500 pairs of slacks and 2,500 pairs of shorts. And you wouldn't do those, that thing at home because you'd be cashiered the following morning. But um, they, they did pay. And he said, I, we said to him, when would he begin um, his, um, when would he begin? Supplying, we felt maybe from our experience here it might be a month or so. It was then about the middle end of the week. He says, I'll have the first of next Monday. Is that okay? Thomas Kenny, who served with the 33rd Battalion and was later to survive the Niemba ambush, remembers volunteering for the Congo operation. When I came in from a walking party and saw the notice board with this snow hanging on it saying that they were looking for troops for overseas for Africa. I just run up and gave my name without any consideration what I was going to tell anybody or anything like that. It was something that I had been looking forward to all my life, a childhood ambition to see part of the world and to see how other people lived. And giving pennies to the black babies at this time, I was getting the privilege to go over and see how they lived and maybe to see how many pennies they were getting off me, in fact. 
and I was actually getting the privilege of going over to having a look and try and help those people that couldn't help themselves. I knew it was in Africa, and before we went, we were gave some maps about what was going on over there. We told that we were told the Belgians had their occupied, and the people was out there getting liberty or whatever they call it, and the Belgians was moving out, and there was trouble over there, and those people was wanting help. I thought it was ploughing the ground or sowing trees or doing different things that people wasn't letting them do, and I didn't know the whole political end of it, and I wasn't interested in it. I was interested in going over to see how they lived. The first week was trying to get climatised to the temperature was 96 degrees in the shade and our tongues were swelling up on water. Now we'd fill up our canteens and we'd go on duty. The night was great because we could put our own heavy clothes over our light little UN clothes and water wasn't of anything because frost, everything like that. And we being used to that climate over here could survive it but when the days came we definitely had to look for water. But most of the duties was on trains, taking them a thousand to maybe two and a half thousand miles it would take two weeks, two and a half weeks or maybe three weeks to get to the destination. An express train back now and we wouldn't know whether we had been there or not. It was all sort of in the days past. It was nothing new to say. You're on the train tomorrow. Get yourself get your warm gear with you and keep your day gear with you. And that was the way our days was going in the Congo. It was a lovely place. I've seen thousands upon thousands of miles from standing on the side of an old train, watching little animals, watching the fruit growing, watching mangoes growing, which is one of the local tropical fruit. Maybe come to a big grapefruit orchard, nip off the train, it was going so slow. You could have your pack bag full up of grapefruit and jump on and to be all sour, they wouldn't be rival. To be all along the track for a week. <laughs> Our main task tasks were 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 to show a UN presence by patrolling. To protect public installations like factories, uh, power stations, radio uh, installations, and so on. Um, and where necessary uh, to to protect personalities as well, and generally speaking, to to create a feeling of calm within the area, to provide the native people with a feeling that here was a group of a military group that were prepared to listen to them and understand them and, and protect them. In that, this latter one, Niemba is a very good example of it. I don't think we were terribly successful. They looked upon us really as white-faced Western Europeans. But as far as they were concerned, the white man had been a traditional enemy for very good reasons also, if one reads back over the history of the Belgian Congo.
And they weren't prepared to trust a white face of any class of description. And I don't think they ever did. The situation was that uh, Chombe's forces under the with the Europeans of Elizabethville behind them. Uh, they wanted to hold North Katanga, uh, where the uh, major local tribe, the Baluba, uh, were hostile to Katanga and its secession and wanted to stay part of the Congo. Uh, for reasons, of course, which had to do with uh, tribal rivalries of very old standing inside the area. Uh, so uh, Chombe had sent mercenary forces uh, in there to subdue uh, these people and oblige them to be in. Uh, they had resisted, and in the course of their resistance, uh, bridges were blown up. Uh, the Irish force uh, was uh, sent there to uh, rebuild the bridges. Uh, the local people thought that the Irish people were, uh, that the Irish troops were rebuilding those bridges so that Congo, uh, Chombe's mercenaries could come in again and shoot them and burn their villages. To have anybody killed in combat was, al was almost unthinkable. Almost unthinkable. Certainly, Lieutenant Gleason's um, performance at the at the uh, at the scene of the ambush is absolutely indicative of this undoubtedly uh, he had um he had a belief that that the use of the word hello how are you which uh, loosely translates the word jambo uh, would would halt any group for sufficiently long for him to get into contact with them and try and persuade them with a couple of words of Swahili that his group would have and maybe an odd word of English that the villagers would have, that they were there on a friendly mission. And in fact, one of the last things that he was heard to say, uh, and this, we have evidence of this, that hold your fire, lads. Don't fire until they fire at us. That's indicative of of a man who doesn't believe uh, that they will be attacked, that his group would be attacked. It's, 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 a, it's a belief that they can talk their way out of this situation, which of course we had talked our way out of many situations like this. This one, unfortunately, we didn't. Lieutenant Kevin Gleeson and eight of his men died at the bridge on the River Luaiwe on November the 8th, 1960. Privates Kenny and Fitzpatrick miraculously survived the ambush and wandered in the bush until they were picked up. Corporal Jim Lynch was with Lieutenant Jerry Enright's patrol, which was sent out the next day. He told his story to John Ross at the time. We started to work on the bridge to make a crossing. We discovered that there were car tracks on the far side of the road block, of the bridge block. Uh, we continued working there for some time, and some of our patrol discovered that there were empty magazines on the road. We continued our search around the area and in, the, in our endeavour to try and find some planking to cross the bridge, we cut into the right-hand side of the road on the far side of the bridge and there, after walking about 50 yards, I see the white objects in front, which I knew were the bodies of some of our men. 
There was a large presence of Balubas in the area and the patrol was withdrawn so that a stronger unit might return safely the next day. Captain Donald Crowley takes up the story with John Ross. There was feverish activity there. The Ethiopians got walking, they got out uh, tracking and searching the bush. Uh, some of the bodies were found. Five bodies had already been found. They were being brought up by the medical people and um, solemnly placed on the vehicle there for return to Albertville. Then uh, the rest of the party, I organized the search party and we headed off over the, uh, what was left of the bridge and into the bush there. We spent about an hour there and uh, no other body was located that evening. The body of trooper Anthony Brown was not located for another two years, but the other bodies were flown home to Dublin, where the streets were packed for one of the biggest displays of public grief that Ireland had known. The rosary sprang spontaneously to many people's lips as the funeral cortege passed. All the army officers present come to attention. And they salute. against anybody. What happened to me could have happened to anybody and I bear no hate against nobody. Those people that I went out to help, unfortunately, they couldn't help themselves. They were getting brought astray and they weren't at fault for anything that happened. I will never, never say that those people ever was the cause of me being bitter to those. In regards to giving a penny, I was very interested. But in giving my life and my friends that did give their lives, I'm very sorry that it happened. But for to help the people in Africa, it was one of the best and just causes that anyone could ever have given to those people. They deserved everything. It was to do all that one small nation could do to preserve world peace as well as to help the Congolese people to find their feet, that the officers and men of the 32nd and 33rd battalions volunteered for service with the United Nations forces in the Congo. The memory of the gallant Irish officers and men who fell in this, that service in recent months will ever be honored by the Irish people and by all who support the United Nations' effort to keep the peace. In any geostrocrea and
We are here today, the Minister for Defence, myself, to wish Godspeed to the officers and men of the 34th Battalion. You go to relieve your comrades of the 32nd and 33rd Battalions after their arduous service in the tropics. The soldiery bearing of those comrades of yours, their patience, their gaiety, their friendliness, their supreme courage have won the admiration of all and brought renown to the Irish army and the Irish people. Fara, fara! Fara, fara! So it was that Mr Aiken came to address the soldiers of the 34th Battalion prior to their departure and they responded under their commanding officer Colonel Owen O'Neill with the three cries of the Fianna, exhorting watchfulness. Ireland's involvement in the UN had gained great importance at this stage. Dr F. H. Boland had been recently elected President of the 15th Regular Session of the United Nations General Assembly and Lieutenant General Sean McKeown, Chief of Staff of the Irish Army, had been asked to take over as Commander-in-Chief of the UN military operation in the Congo. Uh, firstly, I, I was uh, shattered by the, by the, the thought that, that uh, I should be um, selected. I had no idea at all that uh, a request of this nature might come. And uh, like most other human beings, one's first question is, uh, am, I, am I up to this sort of uh, uh, task? Um, I uh, volunteered, nevertheless, and uh, after getting there, I was, I was so well supported by very excellent staff, people, Irish and other countries uh, serving around me, that uh, we got on uh, very, very well with our job in the Congo. The um, strength of the force at that time was uh, just about 23,000. Uh, these came from 17 different countries, as far as I remember, 17 or 18 different countries. Uh, but in the overall, uh, there were 27 countries represented. Uh, some countries, the balance of countries uh, being made up by staff members, technicians and professional people. To give you an example, the Canadians, who didn't have any combat unit there, but had... Uh, over 500 personnel there, mainly uh, uh, communications people. The Katangi secession remained the most vexed question for the UN in their Congo operation, and when Conor Cruz O'Brien became UN representative in Elizabethville in June 1961, the foreign mercenaries in the gendarmerie continued to prop up the Chambe regime. By September, it appears, it had been decided by the UN that this situation should change, and dramatically. Uh, the... Uh interpretation took the form of an instruction to to go ahead uh, as uh, set out in my book uh, and bring the uh, Chombe uh, regime and its advisors and its forces uh, to an end uh, which was of course uh, later fully uh, acted on uh, a year later. Soldiers from the 35th Battalion under Colonel Hugh McNamee were involved in the operation which began early on September the 13th, 1961. The principal mission of the battalion was to seize, hold and control 
the radio station at the College of St. Francis, Francis de Sales, the railway tunnel crossing of the route to Kisenga to prepare to block it and hold it open for UN traffic. We provided an infantry guard for the Italian hospital in the centre of the town of Elizabethville. Another of our missions was to arrest Mr. Kimbe, the Minister for Finance. We had to provide at least one platoon as a reserve in Albert Park for the Brigade Headquarters staff. We had to secure the refugee camp at the factory, which is about a mile away from our headquarters, and we had to arrange for the local security of Verify Garage, which was being used for repair and reconditioning of UN transport. The main objectives of the operation were the seizing of the post office by an Indian battalion, the seizing of uh, Radio Katanga by another Indian unit. These two units were supported by armoured car groups from the 35th Battalion. Uh, all our missions had been achieved by 0430 and reports came in from the different companies and groups that they were on their objectives and had taken complete control. Fierce fighting was to break out later that day and continued for some days. In what was their first taste of full combat duty, Irish soldiers distinguished themselves, particularly at the tunnel mentioned by Colonel McNamee, where Irish soldiers of the 36th Battalion again distinguished in December. Press reports arriving home gave rise to great concern, particularly about the company at Jadoville, where at first it was reported that as many as 50 Irish soldiers had been killed. It transpired that the company had been taken prisoners. John Ross eventually gained access to the 180-odd Irish prisoners who were held captive until late October and spoke to some understandably tense men. What I hear in Jadoville is uh, the second-in-command of the company, Captain Dermot Byrne. Well, Dermot, could you tell us how the lads are at the moment? How are they feeling? Oh, they're all feeling in fine, great fettle, morale is very high, and their one wish, of course, is to be free from Jadaville, first of all, and be back in Ireland, I think, is the principal uh, wish, and they, they, they pray here continuously for this freedom. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to get it, and possibly soon, but do you think they'll be able to stick it out? I suppose it took another week or a couple of weeks. They'd be able to do it. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt. We've been treated very, very well here. We've got accommodation, good food, and uh, uh, no interference from anybody. Controversy surrounding the September operation led to the resignation of Dr. Cruz O'Brien from his UN post and the Department of External Affairs, and the fighting which broke out again in December eventually led to the ending of Katanga's secession. But Irish units continued to serve in the Congo until 1964, with many men returning for a second and sometimes a third tour of duty. General McKeown. Well, I think this is very natural in, in the case of uh, a great many people in this island of ours, they, they like to get abroad. 
and uh, I would attribute uh, the fact that so many went on a number of occasions to that fact that they do like uh, to get abroad and particularly in the circumstances in which they went abroad in units well organized and uh, well prepared uh, I, I can see that uh, at any level at any rank uh, level uh, that uh, uh, young men were, were uh, uh, very uh, keen to, to get abroad as often as, as they could possibly afford to do it. Brigadier General Redmond O'Sullivan, who commanded the last Irish unit to serve in the Congo, comments on the usefulness of the men who went out a second time. This seasoning was very handy for the, 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 new, the new unit going out because you had a fellow there, naturally if he was going out for a second time, his report on the first effort, on his first effort was good. So you had him, then he was, uh, he was able to kind of uh, set lads' mind at ease about simple things like snakes and th- these things that they'd be naturally afraid of at the first go, like, you know, and say, look, he won't bite you at all, he's all right, you know, he's a, he won't do any damage, that kind of thing. <laughs> you, you like to get him yeah, something, to, to, even if it's wrong to tell you that, you know, to, 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 to raise the own morale a bit, but in actual fact, they were... They, 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 there were things like that you that you walked into and that you weren't at all happy about, kind of queasy about. But these fellas were out uh, on a second trip, like, and had experienced these things. When you saw the way they treated them, you know, when the men saw the way they treated them, well, they knew that, 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 that this is no problem. Sergeant Dick Dunn of the 33rd Battalion reflects that the Congo operation gave the army a great opportunity to improve discipline. From the time that we were selected, uh, we had, uh, as, a, as an NCO, we were taken to the Curra, we met our commander uh, in the Curra in for one day, who left us in no doubt that uh, whatever the standard of discipline we had was certainly going to be increased by uh, 100% plus. <laughs> and uh, on arriving in the Curra, we arrived there, we shook into our positions and straight away out onto training. And uh, after a very short while, I think, uh, in our company's case, I think in less than 30 minutes, we were in no doubt at all that, that the standard of discipline and training was going to jump and jump rapidly. Here, of course, was a golden opportunity. Number one, you see, you had people who had volunteered to do a job. Now, if these people were not prepared to toe the line as regards the standard of discipline and training that was required, or if they didn't uh, come up to what they expected, you just dropped them and that was it, and nobody wanted to be dropped. General McCone looks back on four years of Irish involvement in the Congo. Well, uh, I was very happy about it, particularly from the training value of the uh, entire operation and uh, the extent to which uh, morale had been uh, whipped up here at home and purpose given to our military service, which is difficult to uh, have or attain in peacetime. General O'Sullivan. We were at that stage really uh, an army in evolution, like, and we we were improving those things slowly but surely. And of course, but the old thing was there. We didn't have the money, and uh, even though we the general staff were trying to introduce certain things, the money wasn't there. This is what we were told, and th- this we we accept uh, in, in in a democracy. But at the same time, I think it gave these things a sense of urgency, and that uh, we otherwise wouldn't wouldn't be there and naturally speeded up a lot of these things. I would say that in the military training aspect of it, uh, I haven't met 
and I, I was in Cyprus afterwards and met, met a lot more nationalities again. Uh, I haven't met anybody that I would call better than our, our young officers. I, thought, I, I couldn't speak highly enough of them. There are streets ahead of uh, some nationalities I could mention. Naturally, you, you compare yourself to other people when you're out there, and uh, um, I think it's fair to say, uh, outside the Congo at all, including the Cyprus one afterwards, that uh, we are good peacekeepers.